Welcome to our podcast series, Talking with Traders, hosted by expert trader Garth McKenzie in London, from where he's interviewing various guests on the topic of trading. Welcome back to another season of Talking with Traders with me, Garth McKenzie. This is the sixth season of the podcast, and we're into our third year since the podcast began in 2020. Once again, IG have come on board as sponsor and agreed to fund this podcast for another season. We really are privileged to have such a global leader in CFDs trading as our podcast sponsor. Over the coming weeks, I'll be interviewing various guests from around the globe to bring you their market insights. I'll be digging in to find out what makes them tick, how they see the markets in the year ahead, and what techniques they will use to succeed in the markets. Some of the guests will be returning guests from previous seasons, and some will be new guests that I've managed to convince to join me to give up their time and share their insights. As we enter 2023, there's as much uncertainty as ever around where the markets may be headed in the next 12 months. We've just come off a horrid year for investors in 2022, where a typical 60-40 portfolio delivered its worst annual return in several decades. But what of 2023? Will the US lead the world into a global recession, or will the central banks manage to achieve a soft landing for the global economy? Will inflation come under control as base effects kick in and supply bottlenecks open up? Will US earnings hold up in the face of a weak economy, or will they disappoint? Will we see continued weakness in the US dollar? I'll be asking these and many other questions to my guests in the coming weeks. The idea behind these podcasts is for you to get a variety of views from a broad spectrum of market professionals. None of this is intended to be seen as financial advice, but it is intended to get you thinking and to weigh up what possible paths the market may follow in the year ahead. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be notified of upcoming episodes as they get released. Once again, thanks to IG for sponsoring this podcast for a third consecutive year. Thanks for joining me, and please enjoy Season 6 of Talking With Traders. Welcome back to another episode of Talking With Traders, and this time I've got another new guest on the line. I'm delighted to have someone from Anchor Capital join us. This is the first guest we've had from Anchor Capital. Uh, his name is Selejo Tatsi, and he's an analyst at Anchor Capital. Uh, he's going to mainly be speaking to us about green investing today. Selejo, welcome to the Talking With Traders podcast. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Give us a little bit of background quickly. I always do this with new guests, just as to who you are, um, your your career history. I mean, I know you're pretty young still, but give us a little bit of background quickly into who is Salejo Tatsi and what you're going to talk to us about today. Thanks. Yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm that young anymore, but I'll definitely take it. So <laughs> I've I've been at Anchor for this is now my eighth year. Wow. Uh, so since the end of, near the end of 2015. And through that time, I've been covering resources locally. Um, I've covered a few other sectors also on the JC, but I've primarily focused on resources. And then uh, we'll, because we also focus on offshore markets, um, in offshore markets, I'm more of a generalist. So I'm looking at stocks across different sectors. It could be energy, mining, industrials, tech, uh, really anything. Okay. And before Anchor, I was, I was at another asset management company for about a year and a half or so. And then before that, I was studying. Okay. All right. Super. Good. So what what got me onto 
wanting to speak to you was one of the anchor, the recent anchor market outlook webinars, which I know you guys do. I don't know if you do it quarterly or half yearly, uh, but but I, I tuned into the one for now the twenty twenty three outlook. And uh, you had a very interesting presentation, which went alongside a blog article that you've recently written about green investing and and your, where the opportunities lie, and just in term, just trying to unpack the theme a little bit. And I know, I mean, this this podcast is talking with traders, isn't it? Not, you're not a trader; you're an analyst. And this topic might so some listeners might think, oh, what does this have to do with trading? The reality is that uh, the green economy, the shift towards a, a more green uh, economy has very, very significant investment implications. What I want to start the conversation with is some stats around uh, carbon emissions and green, you know, greenhouse gases and these kind of things. You had some very interesting stats on your on your blog that you put out there. So just lay the background, if you would, in terms of that, so that it sort of tees us up for the rest of the conversation about why green investing is is a theme and it's likely to remain a theme for time to come. Sure, Garth. Yeah. So maybe to to set the, the stage. Um, at the moment, as a, as a globe, we're emitting about 50 billion tons of CO2 of carbon dioxide equivalents on an annual basis. And um, the long story short, the, the effect of that is it's leading to a, an increase in the average global temperature. So I think at the moment, we're at about 1.2 degrees Celsius higher than pre-industrial times. Um, and the you know it doesn't sound like much 1.2 mm. degrees you're like okay what's like what's one degree but um, these these small shift these small shifts in average temperature have huge ramifications for our economy and our health and kind of how we can live. Um, if we look at uh, COVID, I think 2020, where we as a as a world we kind of stopped and we all just paused how we lived. Um, even in even in 2020. Global emissions only fell by about 5%, which is, I was stunned when I, mm. I heard that. So I think what that tells us is that um, if we want to get to net zero, and so net zero is this idea that we, we need to um, stop emitting, really get that 50 billion tons down to zero. Yeah. If we're going to get there, we're going to have to really change the way we um, it's, it's not a question of, of doing less of, of what we're currently doing. We're going to have to fundamentally change how we are structured in terms of our economy and how we live our lives. Mm, mm, okay. Well, so I was also stunned by that figure that you said with, that we only lowered global emissions by 5% during COVID. And you think just what we all had to go through in terms of you know, no travel, um, work from home, supply chains that got... Uh, frozen up, et cetera, et cetera. And you think all of that, which is an enormous behavioral change for everybody, yeah. all of that, and we only managed to reduce emissions by 5%. I mean, it looks like mere behavioral changes are, are not going to do it for us, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so there's a there's a nice analogy um, that uh, Bill Gates had in, in a book he wrote on climate change. And he was basically saying, we can think of uh, we can think of the climate as kind of being like a, a bathtub. Um, and the idea is that um, we can think of emissions as kind of filling up the tub. And eventually, if we, if we keep filling up the tub, we're going to get to a point where um, it'll overflow. And we can think of that overflow as being um, the uh, kind of 
economic and health consequences that, that we don't want to have. So this idea of net zero is that first we need to stop filling up the tub. So that's net zero. We, mm -hmm. we, we, we stay where we are. But then hopefully at some point in the future, we can actually um, reduce the amount of, uh, of carbon in the atmosphere or CO2 equivalents in the atmosphere. Um, that's through, that could be through some technologies that at the moment are very speculative. So things like um, uh, a direct carbon capture. At the moment, it's, it's, it's a bit of a speculative technology, but, mm -hmm. but that's the idea is that we basically need to get to net zero, at least as a, as a first port of call. Yeah, I mean that that net zero, right? It's I mean I get it. We want to get there. We need. What does it mean though? I mean, does it mean that you know we can still be emitting you know pollution into the environment, but if we plant more trees, for example, that you know that's those are putting out more of the good stuff. I'm I'm really making a hash of this, but I mean I think you get the point. Net zero, right? It's 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 you you have got all of these emissions on one hand, but then you're also trying to balance it out so that net you know it's not like we're not putting out any pollution into the world, right? Exactly. You you I think you're hitting the nail on the head. It's not a yeah. The idea is not that we're going to get our our let's say gross emissions down to zero. Mm -hmm. It's more that we're going to get our net. So we're going to. Um, we're going to at least offset what we're emitting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I see a big conundrum at play here: in the growth and global growth and grow, economic growth, which is such a big thing, and you know, for society in general, economic growth is 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 very important. But what's driven growth in in all of the decades past has been you know, energy uh, and manufacturing mainly, and, and those are inherently dirty things. So, so we, we've got this situation where we still want to try and achieve economic growth, but but these aspirations are completely anti-growth, it would seem. I don't know, what, yes. what is your thoughts on that? Yes, it's it, it's such a um, it's such an I don't, maybe our irony isn't the right term, but it's an unfortunate consequence of growth is that there's a very strong correlation or relationship between uh, let's say income per person um, or GDP per capita, and you see that uh, across nations uh, and um, energy use per person or energy use per per capita. Mm. So you know naturally, as we become wealthy as individuals and economies and societies, we want to use more energy. Um, and I think where, where this gets a bit political is that the the developed world is essentially more responsible or mostly responsible for the you know the amount of emissions that have been uh, that we that we have given the size of the economies and you now have the developing world which wants to uh, you know bring people out of poverty and that's great and and we should be aspiring for that but that is going to come with the unintended consequences of of you know high emissions and these ramifications that we kind of touched on Mm, mm. And I guess also, I mean, it's as you mentioned the term political. There's all of the countries involved, and in, you know, need to kind of pull in the same direction. You've mentioned the Paris Agreement in your in, in your blog article, which essentially is an agreement amongst uh, what's it, 190 countries, I think, yes. to to well, get towards net zero. And I, and I know I think what was a big shock for for a lot of people was when Donald Trump was in power in the U.S. and he pulled out of the Paris Agreement for that time, 
and uh and, and the us obviously is one of the biggest emitters of of carbon into the atmosphere right yes yeah so it's we've so, got we, we've got uh I, I, I guess another conundrum in that a lot of look at china for example i mean they're they're also enormous emitters um but that's also pulling people out of poverty and i just yeah it's 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 tough right to try and think that they've got to try and get um it, it would imply them also slowing their economy down surely to try and achieve this net zero which i just don't see how that's going to happen i mean are we are we is this net zero thing a reality is it realistic to think that we ever get there so I think if you look at China, I mean, that's a great example. They've pulled tens of millions of people out of poverty through economic growth. And alongside that, their their emissions have skyrocketed on an absolute basis. They are um, the biggest emitter. But if you look per person or per, per capita, they I think they still trail the, the U.S. But um, I, th- I, think, I think it's unfair to expect developing economies to to forego economic growth um, and and to say, okay, um, it's unfortunate that that you guys are still developing, but you know, keep your emissions low. I, I, it just it doesn't seem either realistic or, or likely that that yeah. developing economies will will go for that. So I think what's more likely is that developed economies, the likes of the US, Europe, um, will will lead the way, and then developing economies will will follow after. Even even under that scenario, I think it's it's going to be tough. As you said, um, President Trump pulled out of the the Paris Agreement. I mean, there's still a lot of although the world is moving towards a greener economy, I think you would have to say the progress is slow, if mm. if slow, at, you know, at all. It's slow, and it seems that it's not. It's it, it's a lot slower than it needs to be, from what I from everything I've read. Something you you mentioned in your blog article, which I thought was quite interesting, and you can just elaborate on this a little bit if you wouldn't mind. Um, the speed at which previous energy uh, energy transitions have happened. I mean, in the past, we've gone from coal uh, to oil to natural gas. Now, obviously, all of these are fossil fuels, and they're all still very much a part of our uh, of our power generation. But there's what just talk us through the speed of each of the the growth in each of those uh, fossil fuels, and then and then I guess we can talk about the speed with which we need to try and kind of undo it all in in terms of trying to create green energy. Yes. So if you look previously, I think what's challenging about uh, the this this shift uh, in our economy is that we're trying to do it over. A very short space of time. So, if you look at uh, previous energy transitions, um, let's say coal, for example, um, in the first sixty years, where coal went from being from not being an energy source to to being just under fifty percent of, uh, of the world's energy, uh, that took about sixty years for for that transition to happen. Mm. Uh, for for oil and natural gas. It was it was similarly it was actually slower. So for oil, it over the first sixty years it went from zero to about forty percent uh, in in those first sixty years, mm-hmm. and then for natural gas, for its first sixty years, uh, it only got to about twenty percent of the world's energy supply. So okay. generally, generally six decades it takes decades for these kinds of transitions to happen. Usually, but we're trying to do this over a much shorter. Um, 
time period. Um, so, you know, we talked about a little bit about the Paris Agreement. Um, what's interesting about the Paris Agreement is it is, you know, they do cite it as being legally binding. Um, so, you know, it's, it's seen as being more than just talk, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how much teeth it actually is behind that agreement because uh, some commentators have said that although it's, it's referred to as legally binding, um, the, in actuality, there's there's not enough or really any teeth um, if states decide to, for example, pull out or or don't don't work towards meeting targets. But um, that Paris Agreement is trying to limit the increase in the global average temperature to yeah. uh, two degrees. Uh, there's an aspirational goal of one and a half degrees, um, but that's I'll, I'll say that's more aspirational, um, and that's over a much shorter time period than that 60 year period we were talk, we've talked yeah. about we're talking about you know 20 2035 20, uh, 2030 sure. 25 so it's 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 very different um it's we, we're looking to do this very quickly yeah yeah all right so let's let's try to get away from the the science i guess and, and the backstory of all of this and talk about it in the context of investment markets um because the, as much as this is a problem a big problem and possibly an impossible task, there still are a lot of opportunities that get thrown up by this uh, shift towards green towards green energy. And I think I want to chat to you a little bit about that because I think some of the opportunities are maybe not as obvious as what people might think. Um, so I mean, let's, let's start that conversation. Where are you seeing uh, direct opportunities to benefit from or to invest in a greening of the global economy? Yeah, in, in quite a few places, Garth. And I think you make a great point because sometimes people, when we talk about opportunities that will arise from a green economy, people think of this as, number one, something that's far out, like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe 10 years down the line. And number two, they 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 don't see it as a real um, potential source of investment returns of you know sizable investment returns. So mm -hmm. it almost becomes background noise sometimes to people. But um, what we've tried to convey is that we think that this is something happening that has been happening, something that's happening now, and is only going to get bigger in the future. So um, the first point, you know, given that I am a, a mining analyst, um, or that is one of my hats, the first point is definitely in the commodity space. Yeah. So. There are certain metals or commodities that are very likely to enjoy much higher amounts of demand, given this transition that we're going to experience. Um, one that gets thrown out all the time, and perhaps it's you know people might get tired of hearing about it, but it's it's it gets thrown out because it's legit. It's a legitimate um, potential place to look at. It's copper mm. or Doctor Copper. So um, copper's you know copper's roughly about a twenty million ton market. Um, that could that could be up to about 50 million tons by 2050, depending on how quickly we we transition as a global economy. So you have a, a really uh, unusual large uh, increase in demand for copper, and uh, supply could be slower to react. And I think you see that if you look at what some of the major mining companies have been doing. So Rio Tinto, for example, has has recently been bidding on copper assets. BHP recently acquired um, copper assets. Anglo-American has a, a Qualiveco in um, in South America, which is kind of its big growth project. So mm -hmm. the, the miners are very aware that, that the supply-demand outlook for copper could be very favorable. And it's a place that they're looking at. 
Um, I think one cool stat on copper is that if you look at battery electric cars, they need three to four times as much copper as your traditional internal combustion engine. And that gives a sense of some of the kind of increased demand that you could see. Um, but in addition to copper, there's there's nickel, there's aluminium, there's cobalt, which is mostly coming out of the DRC. There's yes. quite a few uh, metals that mm -hmm. metals and commodities that should benefit from this. Lithium is another one, I think, as well. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. mean that had a that's that's had an amazing run over the, yeah. the, the past few years. Yeah, that's another yeah. one. Yeah. And in terms of the companies that one could look at to invest in this, I mean, you've mentioned the likes of Rio Tinto, BHP Billiton, Glencore. Um, these are are company uh, Anglo-American companies that we're all familiar with uh, as South Africans, but there are others beyond the borders of South Africa as well. Yes. So I think if you're looking at uh, mining, I think we have decent options that we can access as South Africans on the JSC with, with some of the companies that you mentioned, the likes of Glencore, Anglos, there's also Sub32. But if we maybe step outside of mining for a second, um, some of the other places where we're seeing opportunity is kind of what we would term as being more downstream. So not companies that are uh, mining the commodities that we're going to need for this transition, but companies that are kind of down the, the value chain. Um, okay. They tend to be a bit more con consumer facing, although they can also be um, business facing. And in some ways they are addressing climate change. So um, one of the things we looked at was the, the top five, sorry, the top 10 performers for the S&P 500 for the five years ending um, 31 December, 2022. And three of the three of the uh, top five, actually, with three of the top 10 also are companies that are really central to this theme of climate change. So it was in-phase energy, which has okay. had a, an enormous run, um, yeah. Solar Edge and Tesla, which I think needs no introduction. Yeah. Uh, the first, yeah, the first two in-phase and, and Solar Edge can, to put it simply, we can think of those as, as solar companies. And then Tesla, as we know, is a battery electric Vehicle, yeah, vehicle manufacturer yeah yeah i mean that, that's the interesting thing i guess about looking offshore unfortunately the jsc is very limited in terms of the opportunities to to go for this type of theme um you've mentioned some of them there i mean when i think of companies in the space that you know copper i think of freeport mcmoran is a is a big it's copper producer up. listed in new york um and then there's um you know in, in lithium <clears throat> there's I think it's Antero Resources, if I'm not wrong, is one of those, is another one that is big in that sort of space. And then you mentioned the downstream ones, so like Enphase Energy, Solar Edge, Tesla. Um, there are also ETFs that are that have been developed to take advantage of this entire theme. So, I mean, the ones I follow, are iClean, I-C-L-N, um, it's the, I forget which it is now, but it's a clean, I think it's iShares Clean Energy ETF. TAN, which is one of the great... Uh, 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 share codes TAN <laughs> is also a, a green energy ETF. There's quite a few of these, right? It's a it's a big theme. It is, yeah, and I think it's uh, for better for better or worse, it's only going to get bigger as as time goes on. Yes, mm -hmm. I think and one of the yeah, go on. Sorry, God, I think one of the one of the tricky parts of this is defining what um, I mean defining. So ESG is a much broader term, but defining what an ESG fund is or what fits into a climate change portfolio ETF, I think that um, 
that's not necessarily a, a, a challenge, but just something to, you know, it's such a broad term that mm. I think sometimes you do have to kind of look under the hood and see what's actually in either an ETF or a fund. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, some of those those ETFs that I've spoken about did do very well for a period, and then they've done very, very badly during 2022. And I guess it also goes along with the fact that those those companies are that are in this space uh, are also deemed to be growth companies in a way. So they, they they are therefore affected by the interest rate. They're affected by discount rates. And when you see rates going up like they have done over the last year, then obviously the, the discounted cash flows, you bring it back into a net present value, it needs to be lower. So hence, you've seen quite a significant drop off in value of a lot of these types of, of companies. But maybe that's the reset that was necessary to get the valuations back down to more reasonable levels and to and to then set the stage for investing in these things for the future. Yeah, well, I mean, with those three US names that I mentioned, Enphase, SolarEdge, and, and Tesla, um, also I guess Tesla has, has gone on another run again. I think it's close to $200. But mm. um, earlier this year, they had they had such a strong correction. But even after that correction, they were still sitting at kind of, you know, 50 plus um, PE multiples and perhaps you know, PE is probably not the may, may not be the right metric to look at for some of these high growth companies but it just gives a sense that definitely valuations um, were and and are kind of spicy or very high in, yeah. in some of these spaces and you, you need to be aware of that. I guess you've got to believe that they're going to grow into those valuations over time um, and some will and some won't, I suppose. It's like any new theme. Yeah, there are going to be those that make it and those that don't, and booms and busts. And we've, we've sort of seen a bit of a boom and now a bust in some of this stuff. But I suppose the real winners in this in this area of investing will be the ones that we can start to see which are surviving and leading the way out of this corrective phase that, we, that we've been in. I think so, yeah. I mean, we've seen if we look at unprofitable tech on a more broader scale than 2021 and last year as well. Um, you know, a lot of uh, stocks in that space were down 60, 70, 80 plus percent. Um, but but I think it gives the opportunity for us to search uh, in the rubble. And, and yeah. as you said, find the one or two that, that do seem to have legitimate stories behind them. Mm, mm, mm. I guess the starting point I would possibly look at is go and actually take apart those ETFs that I've mentioned and have a look what the constituents are. And then me being a technical guy, you being more of a fundamental guy, I guess, but uh, try and try and strip out which ones are looking like they've actually got the, you know, are, are starting to lead on a relative basis and maybe build a portfolio of those. Something else quickly to talk about is, is uranium. I mean, isn't this the, the one answer to a lot of these climate questions is nuclear power. Um, if we're trying to do away with coal-fired power stations, etc., that emit all of these you know, horrible things into the atmosphere, surely, surely nuclear power has got to come to the table. I mean, I know it's a controversial topic, but in all of yes. the research that you do, do you get the sense that this is something that ultimately we we end up there? in terms of power generation in an in an attempt to save the planet from the burning fossil fuels constantly yes so i mean as you referenced if you look if you look at um if you compare nuclear power to for example um coal um 
the on on a on a um, on an energy adjusted basis, um, the the amount of deaths we get from coal is like significantly higher than we get from from nuclear power. I think the the challenge is the the deaths we get from coal are unfortunately not always they're not always kind of front and center in yeah. our face. Whereas yeah. when you have a, a an unfortunate nuclear disaster, that's very much in our faces, mm. in the headlines, on front pages. Mm. And so it's uh, from a, a political um, and social point of view, I think it becomes tricky after, given the history of nuclear um, with some of the disasters we've had, I think it, it has been challenging uh, for some countries after what they've gone through with nuclear to to try go down that road, but certainly, I think at some point, um, just if you look at if you look at the case for nuclear, I, I think it does have to become a bigger source of our, from a global perspective, of our power mix. Mm -hmm. Are there any specific investments that you would look at in that uranium space if you believe that this could become a theme at some point? Is there anything that springs to mind? You know, there I've seen, I've I've read more about. Um, potential investments in the private, um, in kind of in the unlisted space. So I haven't, right. I have, I'm not as familiar with the with the listed space. Um, but I do know there's a lot of work with a lot of smart people uh, looking at nuclear fusion and nuclear fission. But yes, um, in the kind of in the mature listed space, I'm I'm not as um, like I don't follow as many names yeah. in that part of the market yeah likewise i don't either i need to do some homework there the, the two that i do follow there are two etfs which is U ura and urnm both uranium etfs mm -hmm. uranium mining etfs um and those are maybe something to watch and again perhaps drill into what the constituents of those etfs are and then do some research from there let's just pivot away from this quickly though i mean we've talked about some of the the more obvious benefits ways to benefit from investing in the green economy and the, going forward but there's also something interesting happening here which we, we, from an purely an investment standpoint now if we're looking at opportunities is actually the fossil fuel industry is booming right now uh and and i guess that's also come about because of the fact that You've got limited, in, there has been limited investment in new fossil fuel projects to drill more oil, to get more coal out of the ground. I mean, trying to get funding to, to start a coal mine nowadays is just seems like it's impossible. But as a consequence of this, we, uh, we still use a lot of fossil fuels. We will continue to use a lot of fossil fuels for quite some time to come. And yet we're not producing enough of this stuff. There's potentially supply and demand imbalances coming here, right? Yes, Garth. Um, I mean, I, it's, everything's always twenty twenty with hindsight. But looking back at kind of the depths of COVID in in twenty twenty, when uh, oil was 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 getting destroyed, um, mm, it went negative for a period. The futures market. Can you believe it? Yeah, I know exactly. And I mean, with hindsight, I, I guess the market was at that stage was basically pricing in that we weren't really going to be using oil again or to a significant <laughs> degree as a global economy, which kind of seems funny now that when you think about it, but uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, for all the talk of renewable energy and and this transition, if you look at where we are now, coal is still on a global basis, um, over 30% of the world's energy mix and coal is growing in, in Asia. Um, it's, it's, uh, 
despite the the challenges that come with it, it's still going to be a, a big part of our power mix for some time. And I think a great example of this, probably for local investors who will, will be familiar with this, was uh, Tungela last year. Mm. Uh, you know, the kind of the probably the most familiar um, export coal uh, name on the JSC. So yeah. uh, thermal coal prices were they were climbing before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But I think that spurred the the supply tightness because of the the sanctions that were put on afterwards. And you had a situation where uh, you had a commodity that generally was around, let's call it $90, $100 a ton. And I think the, the high it reached in 2022 was around $350, $360 a ton. I'm talking um, API4 or the Richards uh, Richards Bay benchmark coal price. Mm-hmm. Um, so... So that that coal price was up, let's say three, three and a half times at its peak, um, and it was really a case where you had a, a year of absolutely uh, super abnormal profits for the coal sector, and as you said, um, part of it is just because supply isn't is not growing to the to the degree that that demand um, is, uh, so supply is restricted. Um, Tungela actually has in some of their earnings calls have made some interesting points. So for example, they're, they're looking at uh, self-insuring now because they think it's the most economic thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they want to keep at least 6 billion rand of, of net cash on their balance sheet um, during during periods of, of high coal prices. And they've said that it's it's becoming increasingly difficult as a coal player to, to source funding at decent uh, costs of capital. Mm. Um, if you look at energy, uh, maybe we're not as exposed as JSC inv- investors, but if you look offshore last year on um, on the S and P five hundred, it was really the energy sector that was the only sector that was up. I think it was up fifty five percent, whereas yeah. everything else was was down. And a lot of these energy uh, oil and gas CEOs are or have been banging the table, saying that supply is just not growing um, at the pace that it needs to. So. So, as you said, it's it's setting up a very interesting situation where uh, funders or capital markets are increasingly moving away from from fossil fuels, mm. um, and as a result, we could have more price spikes in the future where uh, demand, for various reasons, um, it might not be a war, but various reasons in the future could spike, and we just won't have the supply to be able to deal with those those increases. Yeah. Yeah. Something interesting that I noticed in that in energy space that you referenced in the US last year, you said it was the, t- the top performing sector in the US by a long way. I mean, it, as you say, mm-hmm. up over 50% for the year in a year where the S&P 500 was down 20 odd percent. Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of got the sense that energy, the, these oil producers and these big old-fashioned kind of energy producing companies had to some extent that they'd become quite discounted in terms of their valuations on the basis or on the the expectation that this is an area of the market that's not going to have a long-term future. And if you believe that a a particular industry is not going to have a long-term future, well, then it becomes cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, and, and, And I think that's what happened in the energy space. And I, what's been interesting to note over the last let's say six months, is that you've had quite a meaningful pullback in the oil price. Oil's off by about a third from its peak. 
in in the middle of last year. And yet, if you look at the share prices of a lot of these energy companies in the States, oil producers and the likes, and think of ExxonMobil and Chevron and these types of businesses, I mean, their share prices have not come down anywhere near the, the, the losses that you've seen in the oil price. They've remained at pretty elevated levels. And I'm just wondering, has that got to do with the fact that maybe the market is adopting a view that maybe this, you know, terminal rate or terminal time of fossil fuels is not as soon as what was previously being priced in. Perhaps they need to add a couple of extra decades onto the life of these businesses, and therefore they can actually attract the higher valuation. That's, to me, what sort of would make sense for the big disconnect that we've seen between the movements in the oil price and the share prices of these big commodity producers and these big big oil producers. I don't know if you think that's a valid argument. Yeah, Garth, I think that's actually a very interesting argument, and it's something that this this disconnect you're talking about is something that in the office we've actually been, especially near the end of, near the end of last year, we were debating it quite a bit because, as you said, the the equities or the shares were share prices were holding up really well, and you had oil coming off, and uh, it actually made us a bit nervous in in not nervous but let's say cautious in um, on on some energy uh, names. Um, and and really, I think the conclusion we came to is that uh, something had to give. Uh, so they, they they were likely to probably meet each other maybe uh, halfway. So yeah. we were let's say concerns that uh, the shares were probably going to come off a bit. Uh, maybe oil would would rally in the sh- short term. But yeah, we were concerned that um, there was a disconnect. But I think you are. Uh, I mean, if you look at let's say the the ultimate um, example of a long-term investor, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, Um, they've been buying Occidental uh, Petroleum for for a couple of years now. Yes. Um, And I think think that was the best performing, I'll have to double check that, but I think it was the best performing stock in the S&P 500. Um, And I I mean, I've, I've watched a couple of interviews where he gave his thoughts on Occidental and you know, he's he's generally not the kind of guy to go in for like one quarter or yeah. six months or something like that. So yeah. he, he was basically saying, which is kind of similar to uh, in a different way, uh, worded in a different way, but similar to what you were saying. He was saying that um, it's basically a bet for him and them on the long term uh, prospects on oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and And although it's having a good period now, he's really thinking about this in terms of years rather than quarters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, he goes into businesses with the intention to hold them forever in many cases. Um, and I know, I think it's one of his terms, this this term cigar butt investing, which I've always stuck in my head. It's it's where you, you, know, you find the cigar that's been chucked on the floor by someone who was smoking it before, but it's actually still got a few puffs left in it. And if you find that you can light it up and get, you know, have some enjoyment out of it. And, I, and and he looks at that from an investment standpoint and says, you know, there are these industries that are maybe written off as being no use for the future or they've got no life, uh, no significant life. But actually, there is a lot of life left in them if you're willing to pay the cheap multiple and get the cash flows out of them. And I'm getting the sense that oil is one of those industries where, and, and, and I think, the market has started to come to terms with the fact that this it's it's not terminal. It's not going to be terminal for a long time. There is a lot of money left still to be made out of this, and 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 hence we're starting to see a re-rating of the valuations of these kind of businesses, notwithstanding the weak weakness in the oil price. 
Yeah, I think if you look at, I mean, maybe another good example is, I think last year we hit about 10% um, battery electric car penetration mm. um, in terms of uh, global car sales, Yeah, uh, which is, I mean, it's ramping up very quickly, but yeah. that still means you have 90%, which was traditional internal combustion engines. And then on top of that, you have uh, the current fleet, which for the most part is is still traditional combustion engines. So mm. uh, if, you think, if you just think of that part of, of this equation, it's going to take quite a while for us, even if we get to, let's say, 30% penetration by 2030, um, it's going to take a very long time for the existing fleet to, to transition to being predominantly, let's say, battery electric or a mix yeah. of battery electric and hybrid. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But it's interesting what you say there about the adoption of electric vehicles because I, I don't think you guys see it as much in South Africa because it's because yes. obviously it's a different you know the infrastructure is not really there. But here in the UK, it's actually amazing to see how many new electric vehicles are available. There's plenty of Teslas around here, but um, there's lots and lots of new ones coming out as well. Lovely cars, very interesting to see, and also interesting to see how the government is is incentivizing people to buy these cars with tax breaks, etc., mm. uh, etc. Et so it's you know, and I guess that's where you've kind of got the legislation being put in place in the developed world to try and speed up this green energy revolution. So, Leo, we we're running out of time. Um, the last question I wanted to ask you, and you perhaps have already touched on it a little bit, but how, how are you positioning client portfolios for this green energy revolution? Now, if you've got a green energy mindset or you've got a, you know, investing with your green hat on, let's put it that way, where are we looking? How are you positioning portfolios? Yeah, God. So I think it's, this is always where the rubber meets the road. And it's nice yeah. to talk about a theme, but then, you know, actually putting it into action is, is a bit different. Certainly on the JSE, um, the miners, so we're looking quite, we have been looking quite closely at the diversified miners. Um, We have uh, historically owned Glencore. Um, At the moment, uh, so we do like the longer term story in terms of its commodity mix. It has copper, cobalt, nickel, zinc, a lot of these commodities that we talked about earlier. Uh, However, Last year, in the first in the first six months of 2022, roughly 50 percent of its profits came from coal, from thermal coal, mm. uh, for the most part. Um, which is ironic because you know it's it's touting itself as uh, <laughs> it's kind of a, a future green play. And so the only concern there is that uh, Newcastle coal. Uh, the, if you look at the Newcastle benchmark coal price, that's gone from about 400 dollars a ton. Um, at the start of January to roughly $250 a ton mm. today. So it's it's off by, by quite a bit, close to 40%. And just given that coal was such a big part of uh, of, of their profits in the first half, um, I think it, it might, you might have a, a bumpy period where profit mix needs to, to kind of readjust. But over a bit, a bit of a longer term, I think we think that's a, quite an interesting way of playing this theme. South 32 is another one. Um, about fit, roughly 50% of their business is what you can call the aluminium value chain. So that's aluminium, that's bauxite, alumina, aluminium. They've bought a copper asset recently. It's still small in their mix, but it, sh- uh, it, it should grow over time. And I think they'll be looking uh, within that space still. And then offshore, we at the moment, we, we, we 
uh, really just doing a lot of work or homework on on the space. So we, you know, we are trying to be evaluation cognizant. So um, as you said, especially given the fact that we're in a rising rate environment, although you know that has paused for now, but mm. uh, we are cognizant of maybe not paying some of these these. Uh, let's call them steamy um, multiples. But mm. at the moment, we, we're really just doing a lot of work and we want to be ready for for if there are further um, corrections in terms of share prices for, let's say, some of the solar companies. Um, the, the battery electric car space is very interesting. And I think offshore, there's probably a bit more uh, more ways to play this. Mm, yeah, there are certainly a lot of ways to play the theme offshore. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, Saleo, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. I've, I've looked forward to this conversation and it's been insightful. Thank you very much. Um, I'm glad to have got you on. You're the first member of the Anchor Capital team that I've got on the podcast. And I certainly hope some of your colleagues will come along and give us some of their insights in the future as well. No, thanks for having me, Garth. I'm actually, I'm, I'm surprised the time's gone so quickly. It feels like it's been 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> well, so, they yeah. say time Pleasure. flies when you're having fun. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Thanks, Garth. Yes. Thanks for joining us for today's episode.